You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. We have a panel convened to talk about Vexus. Really exciting uh, presentation with plenary presentation yesterday at ACR um, 21, the virtual convergence meeting. I'm joined by uh, the person who did that presentation, Marcella Ferrada from the NIH, and also by one of the co-investigators, Dr. David Beck, who's at NYU. Thanks for joining me, folks. Thank you for, for having us. Okay, so for the audience, um, I'm going to give you their lay rheumatologist understanding of this new Vexus syndrome. It started with, got a, it sort of really was a, a, a big to do last year, as it was described by Dan Castor in one of the sessions, but it's been in the literature since 2020. This year, then it was one paper in 2021, there's already 45 papers. So this is sort of taking off. It's a, it is a, a genetic disorder. It's in the auto-inflammatory um, group, if you will. It's a somatic mutation of UBA1 um, found, and it's been found in bone marrow cells. And it has, you know, fever and a bunch of other presentations. Uh, it has looked like and has been discovered amongst patients with relapsing polychondritis and sweet syndrome and some other vasculitides. Um, so that's where we start with Vexus. Um, you, the experts, want to add to that definition or understanding of the condition? Marcella? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that uh, an important point is that this is uh, an overlap between inflammatory features and hematologic features. And you are correct. The clinical manifestations can be very heterogeneous, uh, but the most common diagnosis in our cohort has been a relapse in polychondritis, but the, clino the clinical phenotype continues to expand. Um, so I think that that is an important point uh, to take. Uh, and of course, the importance of uh, molecular diagnostics, which is what David did uh, last year in the process of um, discovering this disease. So I don't know if, if maybe David want to talk about more. And over this last year, since the Vexus syndrome has caught on and we've received more and more referrals, we've, we've been able to identify patients earlier on in their course. So that's part of what uh, our plenary was about is identifying some of the risk factors for disease progression. Um, but we really, um, we've received uh, quite a number of referrals and we were able to make a 50% diagnostic rate. So this is a disease that's readily recognizable. Um, physicians can identify it via our first report, which is something that um, we were quite pleased to see that it's held true. Yeah, I think that that is a very important point. You know, the fact that we were able to capture the main clinical features for most of for many physicians to be able to recognize it, I think that that is very important because uh, the pattern uh, continues to be the same. I understand that the clinical phenotype is expanding, but these patients are being able to be recognized based on the main clinical features. So. Um, I heard from a wise guy rheumatologist yesterday, I'm an average community rheumatologist. Do you really think I'm going to see any Vexus out there? I point to the data that you showed yesterday, Mar Marcella, of uh, a review of what, 60 or 70 relapsing polychondritis patients, and you found 8% of those actually met criteria for Vexus. So it's out there. And, and David, your report of these cases coming in um, at a big rate, these cases out there, um, and, and I think that people need to know about the syndrome. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that this is more common than, than people think it is. Uh, I think that this is going to be a, a, a very common condition, I suspect. Right, David? Yeah, no, I think that um, we were surprised with the number of cases that we identified in our original report, and it's continued to um, increase as awareness has um, increased. So I think that this is going to be one of the more common auto-inflammatory genetic conditions. It probably already is. Um, and it's something that, you know, we're, we're beginning to understand some of the clinical, the biomarkers for disease severity, um, the prognostic markers. And I think that's the, the focus of what our talk was yesterday, um, kind of being able to provide some guidance for um, uh, what are the prognostic indicators. So let's get into that. Yesterday, um, Dr. Ferrati, you uh, pointed out these three mutations involving valine, leucine, and I guess threonine. And you want to explain that and what that means here to diagnosis and prognosis? So um, the mutations, those are the most common mutations that lead to Vexas uh, syndrome. And we found that the most, the, the one that is associated with worse prognosis is uh, the change between methionine and valine, uh, we found that those patients die more, but David can talk more about the genetic aspect uh, of the disease. Yeah, so these mutations are all at the um, codon, the, the amino acid that initiates the translation, the production of a protein, UBA1B. And that's an enzyme that's very important for ubiquitilation in the cell. And so these different mutations, what they're doing is they're, um, uh, decreasing the amount of protein production uh, to different degrees. The valine actually makes the least amount of protein and has the most severe course for the patients, whereas the leucine threonine make more of the protein and they have a milder. Um, and that's just one of the uh, prognostic factors that we've identified. Um, Dr. Farada can go into a little bit more detail about that, those uh, mm -hmm. other factors. Yeah, so we we've, uh, also look at other uh, clinical characteristics that we thought would be important uh, for outcomes and prognosis, particularly survival. And then we included transfusion dependent. And then we found that transfusion dependent uh, was the uh, one of the predictors, the strongest predictor associated with, with mortality. And to our surprise, when we look at a, at a larger cohort that included the 83 patients, we found that in terms of the clinical manifestations, uh, ear chondritis was the one that was associated with actually a, a better prognosis, um, which we found uh, very interesting. And then we suspect that is probably likely because the ear chondritis is is an early symptom. So the time between the uh, symptom onset uh, uh, until that it was probably longer in those particular patients. So right now, since there, we don't have widespread availability of genetic testing, you're suggesting these clinical profiles give you prognostic information. The transfusion being a surrogate for myelofibrosis and hematologic involvement with anemia, thrombocytopenia, et cetera. Is that what you're suggesting by that? We actually have not seen tremendous amount of myelofibrosis. I will call it more a surrogate of bone marrow failure. Uh, and uh, most of the patients tend to have uh, anemia and thrombocytopenia. Um, a smaller group of patients will also have leukopenia, but it is the anemia and the thrombocytopenia uh, what we have seen uh, most commonly in these patients. 
So what can the rheumatologist do besides giving Dr. Beck a call at the, at, at NYU and transferring the consult um, for testing? Um, how can we go about diagnosis or where, where's the future going to go as far as diagnosis, David? So I think that it's only a matter of time before more commercial companies are testing for Vexus. It's just sort of the speed of identification hasn't really, the, the uh, commercial companies haven't really caught up to it. Um, and I think some of them will, we know that GDX will start testing for it very soon. So you don't just have to go through the NIH or myself to test. Um, but I think that there's going to be more genetic causes. We're already identifying new mutations in UBA1 that cause Vexus. So it's not just going to be limited to these few mutations um, and probably other genes that are causing the same phenotype. Similar to what happened um, with Dr. Kastner, um, my postdoctoral mentor, when he identified familial Mediterranean fever, the genetic cause, the patients who were negative for mutations in, in uh, um, MEFE, they end up having different genetic mutations that drove their diseases. So we think that the patients that don't have a UBA1 mutation may have other genetic causes. So if you have patients that you have a strong suspicion that they have Vexus, but they've been negative for testing for known causes, you know that's where the research arm of being able to identify new causes and continue this cycle of research leading to clinical implications for patients. I mean, it's something that I'm focusing my group how do we get from uh, interfering with UBA1 to fever and marrow failure and, you know, chondritis and whatnot? I mean, so where does the inflammasome come into this? And uh, can you connect those dots? So we can't just yet. It's something that we're working on. So ubiquitin has an important role in regulating NF-kappa B, the signaling downstream. We've identified uh, multiple different disorders that are caused by mutations in the ubiquitin pathways. So HA20, Otulin. Um, and so there's a lot of regulation there. But, but exactly how loss of UBA1 leads to this, exact, this phenotype isn't clear, especially because chondritis isn't seen in other auto-inflammatory diseases. So there's something unique about this. And I think that that's what makes it exciting from the research side is that we're starting to get clues about how relapsing the, the pathobiology of relapsing polychondritis. And similarly, this question of other rheumatologic diseases being caused by UBA1 mutations. We have patients that really look very much like um, other diagnoses, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, and, but they'll have the same genetic cause. They'll have the same genetic mutation UBA1. So clearly this mutation can have a, a, a can result in uh, promoting uh, inflammatory disease, but maybe not only one specific phenotype, maybe a diversity of phenotypes. I want to say that um, I see a fair number of auto-inflammatory consults, and and I promote the idea that when you don't meet criteria for stills or for you know FMF that are that are very clear, um, it's the atypical patients who really need to undergo genetic testing. And I use have used Invitae and a few others um, to get batteries of genes, and maybe this will be included in those batteries going future, going forward. But I think rheumatologists are ready for this approach to the diagnosis and management of their patients. And that's why this, um, this information, this research that you've done is so important because like we've learned, I guess, about the many different variants that are associated with FMF, um, you know, the variants that we're gonna get with UBA1 could tell us a lot more about other diseases, um, could shed light on things that we don't yet know about. Um, again, David, you mentioned earlier that you, were work, you worked with a, uh, Dr. Kastner before, and I asked you the question, how many patients in the auto-inflammatory fever clinic had a genetic diagnosis? you want to give us that number again? 
So, so about 30% have a genetic diagnosis of the patients and 70% don't. And of those 70%, we continue to look for causes over time. And some of the VEXIS patients were in that 70%. And so it just took us time to have enough evidence from other patients and other sequencing efforts to be able to identify those. Um, so part of the process is your suspicion to send patients for genetic testing. They may not have a known cause now, but if it's reevaluated or looked at for research new causes, we may be able to identify something. So that's why people shouldn't hesitate to reach out. If they have a patient that's really atypical, we'd be happy to help um, be involved in their care. Yeah. Sorry. I, oh, sorry. No, I, I just, I just wanted to highlight the, um, you know, uh, along those lines of how do I identify these patients and how we, you know, have demonstrated we have a, a little algorithm in patients that have relapsing polychondritis that we found if you have a patient that a male patient that has relapsing polychondritis with an MCV more than 100 and platelet less than 200, you should highly suspect uh, at this patient to have vexes. But, uh, but again, I, I think that it should not be limited only to that. Why 200 in platelets? That's still a normal level. Uh, this this was an algorithm that we did with all the samples that we have uh, when we evaluated our relapsing polychondritis cohort and then compared the uh, like objective measurements that we could identify as a potential markers to uh, be able to recognize these patients. So I've been in a number of groups having discussions like this and I've canvassed a lot of people and I'm seeing about one in 10 rheumatologists have had some brush with vexus, either considered vexus or diagnosed, um, but no one has a clue on treatment. I've heard give everybody steroids. Um, you know, the, I've heard an anecdote of tocilizumab. The, the, do either of you want to weigh in on this at this point? I'll, I'll take the easy part of this question. I'll leave Dr. Ferrata, my partner in crime with the tough part. Um, so I think we're going to learn more as we're getting more and more referrals and seeing more patients. As we're identifying this disease earlier, we're going to understand the course of it. Um, and that's kind of where this evolution has happened in the project from first identifying the genetic mutation to now finding out the risk factors for severe disease. And then kind of um, going into when people are treated with different agents. We've seen some efficacy for some of the biologics, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Frado will go into this in a little more detail, but um, really we think that there's different phases of this disease and maybe different trajectories that patients are on and not lumping them all together just because they have the same genetic etiology. If a patient is, you know, uh, in a certain stage, they may respond differently. So that, that's, I think, in large part where our thinking is at the moment, but um, uh, what do you yeah. think? Historically that's, yeah. historically, that's been the approach for RA, lupus, and then even FMS. So yeah, we have to learn with time, but um, yeah. Marcella, what do you think? Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think that, again, this disease, it is heterogeneous, and, and David is absolutely right. What we have seen in, in the large cohort that we have the opportunity to evaluate so far is that patients are at different stages. So you will have patients that require tremendous higher doses of steroids, where all other ones will require a moderate dose, and then you have the patients that are going to become transfusion dependent. And then I think that treatment needs to be targeted for uh, those particular groups, depending on the stage of, of the disease are where they're at in terms of 
steroid sparing agents, uh, we have seen um, at least partial response to tocilizumab pretty consistently in combination sometimes with other medications. Um, they still require a little bit of steroids while they take tocilizumab, but it works at least for a period of time. Uh, and some patients uh, had very bad skin reactions to anakinra, so that is something to keep in mind because they could have very large ulcers um, when they get treated with anakinra. So that would be something that uh, I will consider in if, I mean, as a treatment, I will be a little bit concerned about using that particular drug. But what it works is um, steroids. And again, for patients that would be eligible to get a bone marrow transplant, uh, that is also a strong consideration when they become transfusion dependent. All right, Marcella, David, thank you very much for this very uh, helpful insight into a new and difficult disease. Have a good day. You too, thank you. Thank you. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ACR 2021 Convergence and I have a delightful guest, Dr. Seong Kim, and she's the recipient of the Harry, Henry Kunkel Early Career Investigator Award. Welcome, Dr. Kim. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. So you're one of our rising stars. Um, how did you get involved in rheumatology and rheumatology research? Uh, I think um, I always um, liked the rheumatology as a med medical student. Uh, I, I grew up in Korea and I went to medical school in Korea and my medical school had actually a large rheumatology program. So naturally I was exposed to many uh, you know, serious and severe cases of rheumatic conditions. Um, and then when, after I moved to um, the US, uh, the first uh, research opportunity I got was actually at the University of Pennsylvania under the mentorship of Dan Arbert, uh, who is now uh, at Dartmouth. So he, you know, since he you know, he's a rheumatologist, I had a, a pleasure of shadowing him in the rheumatology clinic. And uh, you know, I just fell in love with uh, clinical research and as well as uh, rheumatology as a clinical medicine. So that's how I started out. And it's been a, you know, I don't know, depending on how you look at it, short or long journey, but yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Well, to me, I think it's a beginning journey for you because there's so many exciting things that you are doing. And I've noticed quite a lot of posters with your name on it. Um, and especially, you know, cardiovascular risk, it is such a big thing that, that we are looking at right now and a big topic at ACR. So you have had like a few abstracts. Um, one is looking at hydroxychloroquine and cardiovascular risk in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, the other one is tofacitinib and the cardiovascular risk in the real world. And then also gout, like treating to target whether or not that has any impact on a major adverse cardiovascular event. So I'm just gonna take each one and I want to talk to you about it because, you know, there are certain things that you can only fit so much into the abstract. And I'm sure there's a lot more behind the scenes. And I want our viewers to, to get a chance to know what that is. So let's start with abstract. It's a late breaking abstract, number 11 with hydroxychloroquine. Um, could you give us a really quick overview about what you studied and what you found? 
Yeah, so actually this uh, study started before the beginning of pandemic. So initial intention was actually looking at the cardiovascular safety of methotrexate uh, in rheumatoid arthritis triggered by, uh, you know, the disappointing uh, result of search trial uh, a couple of years ago. And then, um, you know, in order to study methotrexate, I had to kind of determine what would be the best competitor because, um, you know, when you're doing an observation study uh, using real-world data, it's very important to know uh, which drug is, you know, going to be used as a reference. Because unlike trial, you don't, we don't have a placebo in real world. And if you use actually non-user as your reference, just like placebo in trial, you will really you know, uh, trigger a lot of bias and confounding. So that's how initially got uh, started. And then and the pandemic, unfortunately, hit us and affected us, uh, uh, you know, and still been, you know, uh, you know really bad. Uh, what, what, you know, during, as we all know, you know, the hydroxychloroquine saga um, was, you know, in the media all the time. And I think that's probably uh, when we all kind of got an email and then, you know, a lot of questions from patients and the public about um, arrhythmia and other cardiovascular safety of hydroxychloroquine. Um, so we basically added a couple more outcomes uh, um, to our original uh, pro uh, protocol, uh, which didn't really include uh, arrhythmia and you know other things because it was actually just for um, mesotrexate, like I said. And then um, once we started, you know, dive into more uh, for the cardiovascular safety of hydroxychloroquine compared to mesotrexate, we we actually found reassuring data uh, with regard to the arrhythmic uh, potential of hydroxychloroquine compared to uh, mesotrexate. So that's, I don't think is anything um, that we should uh, worry about in terms of, uh, you know, the dose that we use uh, for hydroxychloroquine in rheumatology, which is different, much less and, you know, uh, much, um, uh, you know, given more, you know, more prolonged pattern rather than like a couple of days intensive for COVID uh, initially last year. Um, and, and but then uh, at the same time, what we also found is you know we use uh, Medicare um, claims data, and then uh, part of Medicare claims data, the, the strengths of this uh, data source particular is we, you know that we have a linkage to uh, national death index, so we can also determine cause of death. Usually, if you just have Medicare or other claims data, all you get is like all cause death. Uh, but here we have a cause of death. So we wanted to look at, you know, all cause mortality risk, uh, cardiovascular mortality risk, and heart failure was one of it because we thought it would be interesting endpoint as uh, heart failure or cardiomyopathy is, you know, somewhat concerning outcome related to hydroxychloroquine, and we kind of all knew about it to some degree. Uh, to our surprise, actually, the hydroxychloroquine is associated with an increased risk of heart failure uh, compared to mesotrexate. And I think it's kind of across whether they have history of heart failure at the beginning uh, or at baseline or before the initiation of either treatment or not. So, uh, you know, it is uh, possible or maybe it actually is maybe more pronounced in you know, the defect of hydroxychloroquine on heart, uh, heart failure or um, the cardiac function. Um, maybe it's more pronounced than, than we as a rheumatologist think, because I think sometimes, and this personally, me, um, 
unless patient has very, very bad heart failure, I don't particularly feel very like strongly about not using hydroxychloroquine. Um, if they are on just small dose of Lasix, I, I don't know. I'll be like, oh, you cannot use hydroxychloroquine. I don't think I'll be like that. And, you know, it's also um, shown in the data because in, in Medicare, you know, older patients, a lot of patients with history of heart failure with the use of diuretics at baseline are getting hydroxychloroquine. So there are many rheumatologists and many other uh, physicians who prescribe hydroxychloroquine somehow felt comfortable prescribing hydroxychloroquine with a patient, um, inpatient with a heart failure history. So, so that's something um, that I think that we need a little more education and a little more caution uh, in our practice. And, and then, and then I think because our study includes very old patients, you know, the mean age is uh, early 70s. So it is possible that this is only true in Medicare, like age population, maybe it's not so bad if we study younger patients. Uh, so something um, on the, uh, those lines uh, need to be further studied. Yeah, the results surprised me. I, I was a little bit shocked because, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've been asking the question, well, could it be that these doctors prescribe hydroxychloroquine to patients who have so many comorbidities or multi-complex morbidities that, you know, that's the reason why that drug was chosen? Um, and then, like, is this going to impact our practice? Like, should we be thinking about, you know, getting an echo a few years or a decade of patients being on it? Or, you know, are you going to avoid hydroxychloroquine in heart failure? I, so, so that actually opens up, you know, a big can of worms, in my opinion, um, that really needs to have a lot more data and to study. But, it, you know, kudos to you, because that was a lot of work to try to put together that data. I really appreciate you you know, highlighting that, but, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see, you know, and follow your work and, and how this turns out. Now, the next study that you did was the late breaking abstract number L06, uh, L06, and it's about gout and treat to target with um, MACE outcomes. Could you tell me about that and your thoughts? Yeah, so um, in my colleague Kazuki Yoshida presented uh, earlier this morning uh, as a late breaking abstract. Uh, the detail or the hazard ratio, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, we can probably refer it to the poster. But the, um, the rationale that we did this study actually was to uh, look at the risk of uh, cardiovascular events in relation to the type of uh, treatment strategy they get for gout. So, um, it is funded by uh, uh, NIH and IM's uh, R01, uh, and you know it has a two part. The first part is actually looking at uh, the different treatment uh, gout treatment strategy on the risk of gout flare, which is we are which we are still working on. Uh, a part of it was presented uh, at the ACR, uh, but we don't have a full uh, outcome. The second aim was actually on the risk of cardiovascular. So what we thought was in a um, some of you probably are familiar, uh, the uric acid um, is, you know, risk factor, hyperuricemia is a risk factor for uh, increased cardiovascular uh, comorbidity and um, mortality. And, you know, many people believe that, you know, treating um, high uric acid level with a uric lowering drug may, you know, reverse the risk or may reduce the risk. So the thought behind our particular, you know, this study was, if we do a more treat-to-target strategy rather than just initiate um, 
you know, entrepreneur of a box outside and then see what happened. You know, if we do more tight control and, you know, more routine, regular monitoring, not only their gout improve, but maybe their uh, other comorbidities such as cardiovascular risk may improve. Or, you know, the other uh, possibility is if, uh, you know, if we um, look at uh, the Febaxas safety study, the care trial, uh, you know, maybe on, on not through the uh, ura, um, lowering mechanism, maybe something else, you know, due to some other I- issue with the Febaxas that maybe tight control of urate with uh, either allopurinol or Febaxas that could potentially worsen their risk of cardiovascular. We don't know, right? Because none of these is really uh, studied uh, in the past. So ideally, obviously, this should be uh, tested in a trial setting, um, but it's, uh, you know, expensive, takes time or the stuff. So we decide to uh, use uh, the link data set uh, between Medicare and our institution's uh, electronic medical records. So we uh, looked at um, in a patient with a gout who started either allopurinol or febaxastat, um, um, and then kind of saw them um, through um, their treatment course and see how the tight control versus just starting urate lowering therapy. Uh, and then we have several other um, different treatment strategies that we're looking at, and then and then see the impact. Um, I think. One thing we can say for sure is uh, it doesn't look like the tight control or treat-to-target strategy is worsening uh, the risk of cardiovascular disease. Is uh, we had a you know modest um, point estimate that kind of suggests potential benefit, but we don't also want to overinterpret our uh, data. You know we are very uh, careful. We try to be careful because maybe there is uh, some confounding. Again, this is a you know uh, observation study, so it's prone to uh, having all this bias. Um, so if some patients who are very good at following up, you know, getting blood tests, seeing their rheumatologist or PCP and taking medication as prescribed. All those are like good behavior, right? Good behavior uh, uh, patterns. And maybe that kind of, not just a treatment strategy, but, you know, patient being very good at like, you know, maintaining their health and, you know, keeping their appointment or that characteristic are contributing to a better uh, risk of cardiovascular. So, So we are not trying to really say that treat to target is, decreasing uh, the risk of cardiovascular, although the point estimate is a little bit, you know, showing it that way. But, um, you know, I think uh, we need a confirmation uh, by, you know, with a probably a pragmatic trial or large clinical trial uh, that's free of confounding. But as uh, as far as we can tell from our data, um, the tight control treat to target um, that was tri- uh, treatment strategy seems to be fine uh, with regard to uh, the uh, uh, risk of cardiovascular. Yeah, and who knows what would happen, you know, if the trial had a much longer follow-up too. So, so right. it'll be interesting. And then the last abstract that I'm going to pick your brain on is abstract number 1939, which is the real-world data of tofacitinib and cardiovascular risk. I mean, FDA warnings and This year has been very interesting regarding TOFA. So go over that study with the real world data. I mean, like, if you'll summarize that. Yeah, so this uh, has been uh, fun, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, 
time uh, for a, a person like me uh, who does drug safety research. Um, this particular abstract and study um, is designed and conducted in our effort to um, you know, test and duplicate what the oral surveillance TOFAT clinical trial has shown. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have all the full like, you know, details of a trial because the paper is not out yet. But what we had was, uh, you know, the full clinical trial protocol is available at clinicaltrial.gov. Uh, just like any other clinical trial that are being conducted. So when, after we heard about, um, you know, some FDA um, initial communication and media report on concerns related to increased risk of MACE outcome uh, in this TOFA uh, trial, we thought that, you know, okay, this is a trial and trial was only done in patients with a high risk, uh, high cardiovascular risk um, and obviously they have to have a rheumatoid arthritis and they have a very strict inclusion criteria to enter or be eligible for their trial, just as usual for any, any trial. But this was cardiovascular outcome trial. So they had a little more, um, you know, inclusion and exclusion criteria for that. So what we did uh, was using three different uh, real world uh, insurance claims databases in the US. We tried to um, one, just uh, have a more generalizable array cohort to study uh, the cardiovascular risk of tofacitinib compared to um, you know, all five TNF as a class uh, among patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And as a subgroup within that large RA uh, cohort, we um, mimicked uh, the trials inclusion and exclusion criteria as much as we could. We don't have exact same criteria. You know, we cannot use exact same criteria because you know, we don't have some of the clinical component in claims data, but we had like same age restriction, same age, I mean, same uh, restriction related to their underlying cardiovascular history and things like that. So, so we had the real world evidence cohort we call and then the ICD duplicate cohort, which we tried to mimic the oral surveillance inclusion exclusion criteria as much. What we found was interestingly that in the real world evidence cohort, uh, there's seems to be you know, not so much um, different in terms of uh, cardiovascular risk between TOFA and uh, the TNF as a class. Uh, but in the um, duplicate, RCT duplicate cohort, uh, the point estimate suggests an increased risk of cardiovascular events for uh, tofacitinib compared to uh, TNF. So um, I think it is uh, still challenging why this uh, is the case, right? Like, you know, maybe, there's some kind of um, treatment heterogeneity that we cannot fully explore given, you know, the small, small, relatively small sample size and, you know, relatively uh, short uh, treatment time. Uh, but I think that's potential um, explanation. And I think it, our study in my mind is very uh, important and practical because these are like totally like, you know, representative of the patient that we we see in the clinic, right? Like the trial populations, some of them probably are uh, in our clinic, but most of the time, you know, we don't have always like older patients with a high cardiovascular, uh, you know, risk. So I think, you know, just strengths of using real world data for drug safety research, as long as you have good method and good study design, you're careful about how to analyze data. I think we can um, really uh, provide 
more practical and generalizable data. And then definitely, we, you know, we hope to, um, you know, fill some of the gaps that we have uh, in the literature, uh, you know, and hopefully can be used in, um, in a clinical care. No, absolutely. And I, it is very important because it compared to trial data. Um, and I think that, you know, it cautions us that there are certain people who might actually have a little bit higher risk. And, and as long as you counsel your patients and, you know, kind of judge the risk benefit profile, then I think that TOFA uh, could be safe. And so I know, you know, thank you so much for your time. Um, that was like, incredible in terms of all the research that you've done and all that you've contributed to the world of rheumatology. So I, I just want to tell our viewers, um, you know, continue to watch us on Room Now. Um, this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011, also known as the Dow Index. <laughs>